Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, 2 Samuel chapters 10 and 11. We ended last week by uh, reading a substantial amount of scripture in Psalms 44 and 60. And these two psalms are directly associated with the time period of the the ferocious and dangerous two or maybe even three-front war that David was fighting against the Ammonites, the Syrians, and the Edomites. And, And they show us the great distress and uncertainty that the leaders of Israel were feeling at that time. And they especially doubted if Yehoveh was still with them because things weren't going as well as they had hoped for. Now it wasn't so much a matter that they were losing the wars as it was that they struggled mightily to win them. The wars dragged on and on. Israelite losses were terrible. A, A durable peace seemed impossible to achieve since Israel's neighbors were bent on Israel's destruction. Some of this, no doubt, was in response to David's determination to reach the goal of the greater Israel as envisioned by Abraham. But the bulk of the battling had more to do with a long-term settling of scores and other nations' desires for expanding their own influence. Let's reread 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10, page 343 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Sometime later when the king of the people of Abon died, his son Hanun became king in his place. And David said, I will show grace to Hanun the son of Nachash as his father showed grace to me. So David sent his servants to pass him a message of comfort concerning his father. David's servants entered the territory of the people of Ammon. But the leaders of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their Lord, do you really think David is honoring your father by sending people to comfort you? Hasn't David actually sent his servants to you in order to look the city over, to reconnoiter it and overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their clothes halfway up at their buttocks, and sent them away. Now on hearing how they had been treated, David sent a delegation to meet them because the men had been deeply humiliated. And the king said, stay in Jericho until your beards have grown back and then return. Aware that they were utterly aberrant to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired 20,000 Aram foot soldiers from Beit Rehov and Sovah the king of Ma'akah with 1,000 men and 12,000 soldiers from Toph. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab with his entire army of trained soldiers. Well, the army of Ammon came out and went into battle formation at the entrance to the city gate. The men of Aram from Sovah and Rehov and the men of Toph and Ma'akah were by themselves out in the open countryside. And when Joab saw he'd be fighting on two fronts, ahead and behind, 
He chose the best troops of Israel to deploy against Aram, while the rest of the army he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, to deploy against the army of Ammon. And he said, Now if Aram is too strong for me, you help me. But if the army of Ammon is too strong for you, then I'll come and help you. Take courage. Let's be strong for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. May Adonai do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people with him went to battle Aram and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that Aram had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and retreated into the city. Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. Well, when Aram saw that Israel had gotten the better of him, they gathered themselves together. Hadadezer sent and brought out the people of Aram who lived beyond the Euphrates River. They came to Helam with Shovak, the commander of Hadadezer's army at their head. It was reported to David. So he gathered all of Israel together, crossed the Jordan, and came to Helam. Aram deployed themselves against David and fought him. But Aram fled before Israel. David killed 700 chariot drivers, 40,000 horsemen from Aram, and he struck Shovak, the commander of the army, so that he died there. When all Hadad-Azer's vassal kings saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel, and they became their subjects. So Aram was afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Well, because the Bible is, well, relatively short, it's a compact work, really, that covers at least 50 centuries of history, then which events are recorded for posterity must be pretty carefully selected. because So every one of them had a very specific purpose. Why were these particular wars with the Syrians and the Ammonites chosen as important enough to be retained? Because they set the stage and they lead us right into the issue of the infamous affair of David and Bathsheba, which had an enormous effect on Israel's future. Now the narrative begins with the death of the king of Ammon, Nachash, and the secession of his son Hanun to the, to the throne. Now Hanun was greatly displeased with Israel's military presence so close to his borders. And this led um, to a great insult of some Hebrew diplomats sent to him by David. Israel's conquering of Moab led Hunan, uh, Hanun, rather, Hanun and his war council to suspect that they were going to be next on David's radar. And we have to always remember that while we often think of these societies of, of these ancient times as primitive and their ways as perhaps unintelligent, in fact, their motives and political reasonings, their actions, are inherently the same as leaders in the modern world. The only difference, generally speaking, was not the level of intelligence, but rather the available technology. 
Therefore, the king of Ammon's reaction that led to war is akin to the USA's reaction in the Cuban Missile Crisis of the 1960s when an old enemy sought to establish a worrisome military presence a mere 90 miles offshore. Much too close for comfort in modern times, and it very nearly culminated in a nuclear war. Now the timing of this humiliation of David's emissaries can be attached to the chapter 8 narrative of the defeat of the Syrian army of Hadad Azer. In other words, what what we read back in chapter 8 about the defeat of the Syrians as led by Hadadezer is the result of what we're now studying in chapter 10. Now I have mentioned on a number of occasions that much of the book of Samuel and especially in matters of of David and other kings of Israel is not in chronological order. Further, so you're not confused, although our Bibles speak of David warring with Aram. I term it the Syrian war because not all of Aram became involved. It was primarily leaders and armies from the area that later became known as Syria that's being spoken about here. The feud between Israel and Ammon, however, wasn't really about some game-changing new development that had just happened. Rather, it can be traced back to a time when Nachash, Hanun's father, decided that he wanted to drive the Israelites out of the Transjordan. We don't know the immediate motive that drove him to take this action, but we do know that he had an intense hatred of Israel that had built up over time. His scorn probably had more to do with those two and a half Israelite tribes that um, had settled on the east side of the Jordan River, Transjordan, because they were on his side of the river and thus presented much more of a direct threat. There's Ammon right there. So it wasn't just about an affront to his dignity or to his race. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 11 tells us about Nakash. And it's worth reviewing because when we can understand the backstory to all of these events, not only can we remember them better, but we can also see the rationale behind many of these decisions that would eventually come. So turn your Bibles quickly back, just one book, to 1 Samuel. Chapter 11. We're going to read only the first nine verses. 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nachash the Ammonite came up and set up camp to fight Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to Nachash, If you will make a treaty with us, we'll be your subjects. Nachash the Ammonite replied, I'll do it on this condition, that all your right eyes be gouged out, and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. The leaders of Yavish answered him, 
Give us seven days grace to send messengers throughout Israel's territory. Then if no one will rescue us, we will surrender to you. The messengers came to Gibeah, where Saul lived, and said these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people cried out and wept. As this was going on, Saul came, following the oxen out of the field. And Saul asked, What's wrong with the people to make them cry like that? And they told him what the men from Yabesh had said. The Spirit of God fell upon Saul when he heard this. Blazing furiously with anger, he seized a pair of oxen. He cut them into pieces and then sent them throughout the territory of Israel with messengers saying, Anyone who doesn't come and follow Saul and Samuel, this is what will be done to his oxen. The fear of Adonai fell on the people, and they came out with united hearts. He reviewed them in Bezek. There were 300,000 from the people of Israel. The men of Judah numbered 30,000. To the messengers that had come, they said, Tell the men of Jabesh-Gilead tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will be rescued. The messengers returned and told the men of Yavesh, and they were overjoyed. Now, while this information fills in some of the whys and wherefores of Ammon's hatred of Israel, the Dead Sea Scroll of Samuel adds some more data to this. Uh, It says this, Now, Nakash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously opposing the Gadites and the Reubenites. He would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer. No one was left of the Israelites across the Jordan whose right eye, Nachash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and had entered Jabesh-Gilead. So the residents of Jabesh-Gilead, which is just a, a small settlement on the uh, uh, small city-state rather in the Transjordan were primarily a mixed group from the tribes of Reuben and Gad. Okay? But they were there was also close family ties to the tribe of Benjamin which is located right in here. And therefore Saul who was from the tribe of Benjamin felt it was his duty to rescue them from Nakash. Many years after the Jabesh-Gilead flare-up and upon his father's death, Hanun decided to do what many new young leaders do. Make their mark. Establish their name by leading their nation into war against a hated enemy, obviously expecting victory. Now David really didn't want this war. He didn't want this war with Hanun. He didn't want a war with the nation of Ammon. Whether it was from a sincere sense of wanting to put aside long-held animosities between the two nations or a pragmatic belief that he certainly didn't want to have to divide his army and fight on yet another front, he decided to use the occasion of Nakash's death to stretch out a hand of friendship to the new king, Hanun. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 2, has David saying 
that he will show grace towards Hanun. In Hebrew it says he wanted to show chesed to Hanun. Thus David sent a message of comfort to the new king by means of some Israeli diplomats. Now the Hebrew word usually translated as comfort is nacham. And it is the same word that is also translated as repentance. It also carries with it the idea of regret. So comfort is probably a little bit tame and a little bit off the mark for what's meant here. The idea is that David sent a message that essentially communicated that upon the death of Nakash, perhaps it was time for both sides to bury the hatchet and end their long-running conflict. Attending a state funeral of, of the supreme leader is always a good time to do such a thing because the nation and its leaders are often in a reflective mood and, and maybe ready for a change. Unfortunately, Hanun was somewhat less cordial than David had hoped for. The old animosities and distrust was just too deep. And so Hanun's royal court advised the new king that this whole thing had to be a ruse. The Israeli diplomats weren't genuine in the purpose of their visit. Rather, they were spies who merely wanted to gain intelligence on the Ammonite capital city, which was Rabah, modern-day Amman, Jordan. And when one looks back to the brutality that David had piled upon Moab, remember after subduing them, he executed at random two out of every three captured soldiers. It's easy to understand why the king of Ammon and his counselors were wary. They weren't convinced of David's intentions. All one has to do to get a good mental picture of that situation is to turn on our televisions and watch the intractable situation between Israel and the Palestinians. There has been such a long history of violence and deceit and slaughter and failed agreements that that to trust one another at any level seems the height of folly rising maybe to suicide. Thus, Hanun's reaction was almost predictable. He laid the utmost humiliation upon David's emissaries to return a clear message he had no interest in peace. And knowing how, how a Hebrew's beard was more than a cultural norm, it was actually seen as a religious imperative for males. The Ammonites shaved off half of their beards, half the beards of the diplomats, and then followed that up with cutting off their clothing halfway up their rear ends all right, in order for them to be shamefully exposed for public humiliation. In some ways, to the Middle Eastern mind, this whole thing was worse than death. What, what it actually amounted to was a declaration of war. Well, when David heard of this, he sent some men to meet his diplomats on their return and told them they, they ought not to return to the city of David right now. 
Okay, rather they should stay in Jericho, which was a smallish outpost at this time. Wait there until their beards grew back. But understand now, while this might seem like a kind thing for David to do, and it certainly had that element in it, it was far more about David as a king not wanting shame to be in his personal presence and having to view it every day. Okay? Looking upon someone else's shame was seen as shame upon the person's eyes who saw it, especially if it were royal eyes. Now, since he had essentially declared war, the king of Ammon immediately sought allies. So he sent for help from the Aramean kingdoms that had developed in the northern Transjordan off, uh, all the way up into the Bekaa Valley of, uh, of Lebanon, which you, that's a name you certainly hear in the news today. These kingdoms were called Aram, Bet, Rekov, Aram, Zova, Antof. And again, this group of Aramean kingdoms is collectively called Aram in most Bibles. But I prefer to call it Syria because it helps us to understand the area that these troops came from using, using modern place names. For instance, here's Damascus, right here, of Damascus, Syria. Now, these were hired troops, even though very often Bible commentators will label them as mercenaries. The only issue I have with that label is that mercenaries are troops who are in it for personal gain. The reality here is that the kings of these various kingdoms sublet a portion of their national militaries to Hanun in return for a handsome payment. So the soldiers didn't benefit, nor was it their individual choice to join the fight. They merely had their lives put on the line by their king. They were ordered to go and fight on Ammon's behalf so that their king could build up his treasury. First Chronicles 19 explains that Hanun spent over one half million pounds of silver to rent the services of those armies. At today's prices, that would amount to at least $175 million. Well, we next get an account of the number and kinds of troops that Hanun received. If we look at First Chronicles, we get a little bit different accounting. More about the kind of troops than the amount. In the end, what we find is that these foreign forces consisted of a large number of cavalry, chariots, as well as foot soldiers. And we also find the rallying point for the various armies of the Syrians was at a place called Medabah, about two hours southeast of uh, Heshbon, all right, and um, in, in what, is t what was then the territory of Reuben. But I, I did it this way to show you a map here. Today, this is modern-day Madaba, which, of course, is in Jordan. David, of course, responded to this. He wasn't about to wait to be attacked, 
when he knew the enemy was massing. So he sent his top general, Yoav, with the full force of Israel's military under, under his command to confront them. Now verse 8 explains that the battle went like this. First, the national army of Ammon, Hanun's own, own men, set up defensive positions around the capital city of Rabbah because that's where the king's palace was located. The hired Syrian troops arrayed out into the open countryside of these broad, flat plains that are up in this area. All right. um, about four miles southwest of, of uh, the capital to form a second front. This, of course, forced Israel to have to divide its forces. Now, there's an important underlying fact that has, has a growing significance in the story of David. It is that for the first time, David sent his army to confront an enemy and he didn't go with it. That is, he is behaving more like the typical sedentary monarch of his era who stays safely and comfortably behind in his palace while he sends his top general into harm's way. Now, while that is the method of political leaders in most cultures, including our own, from time immemorial, that's not the method of leadership prescribed for God's people. The king of God's kingdom is not to send. He's not to be served. Rather, he is to lead and he is to serve. The king's to go with his army. This is symbolized in how God travels with Israel's army by means of the Ark of the Covenant. To be sure, God's not inside that golden box. Rather, it's just an illustration of God's presence with His people. Israel's kings are to follow this example. And for many years, a younger David did so. But not this time. So Joab divided his army by handpicking what he felt was the best, most experienced troops and he personally led them against the Syrian forces near Medibah. The remainder of Israel's forces were to be led by Joab's brother, Abishai. And they were to go up against Hanun's national army just outside the walls of Rabbah, or on this map, Ammon. The plan was for Joab to go and battle the hired Syrian troops at the same time Abishai was fighting the Ammonites. And if one division of Israelis began to be defeated, then the other one was to come to his rescue. In other words, they'd fight on two fronts simultaneously, hoping to prevail in both. But if it turned out they couldn't win using divided forces, they'd abandon the one front and then combine forces again. Well, in verse 12, before heading into battle, Joab encourages all of the Israeli army by reminding them that what they fight for 
is nothing less than the towns and villages that form the kingdom of God on earth. This isn't about personal honor. This isn't about the hope for spoils of war. This is something that Israel today desperately needs to understand and to take to heart as the world and the current American administration relentlessly pressures pressures Israel to negotiate away many of the towns and villages to God's sworn enemies in exchange for nothing more than a promise of peace. It's hard for me to contain my pain and anger at times that my own nation would try to force such a thing upon Israel. But you know, for perhaps the majority of the churches in America and around the world to adopt a similar stance is just too bitter for words. I don't know what it's going to take for a church that's been infected and polluted for so many centuries with anti-Semitic doctrines to repent and to be purified from such sin. I don't know what it's going to take for misguided believers to wake up. Understand that we are committing the worst possible rebellion against the Lord. Second only to a refusal to accept His mercy and grace of forgiveness of sins through Messiah Yeshua. It's nearly unfathomable to me that even a major portion of Israel's political parties embrace the so-called two-state solution and are openly willing to give up about half of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount, for a peace agreement with the Palestinians. The church and the Israelis need to understand that to resist the 90% of the world that wants Israel to abandon much of the promised land to pagans is to fight the good fight. We're to protect the villages and towns of Israel with all of our might, not because the Jews who live there somehow merit it, but because this is God's kingdom. And he has declared by means of the Abrahamic covenant that the Hebrew people are the only divinely authorized land tenants. Well, even when the divided forces of Israel as led led by Joab were enormous, it made it such that when the Syrian troops spotted this, immediately, because they were hired in the first place, They abandoned their positions and they fled. When the Ammonite soldiers stationed around Rabbah heard about it, they quickly retreated inside the city walls. Neither the army nor the leaders of Ammon had any confidence that they could actually defeat Israel, which is why when Hanun humiliated those Israeli diplomats, a de facto declaration of war, they quickly outsourced for temporary help to join the fight. Interestingly, once the Ammonites went inside their capital city, that ended the battle. 
Yoav chose not to begin a siege of Rabbah, but rather to go home to Jerusalem. This is because, as we're going to see in the next chapter, that it must have been late fall at the time of this conflict. The rainy and cold season was approaching, and so siege warfare was impractical. And besides, such cowardice of their, the enemy's military was proof enough that Ammon was, of itself, not an imminent threat to Israel. However, the Syrians, the Aramaeans in your Bible, seemed to have a great deal more pride than the Ammonites. And so the defeated Hadadezer called for more troops from a region beyond Syria to the northeast of Israel across the Euphrates River. Now these would have been his vassals who had no choice but to obey him and so they answer the call. More troops come. They rally at a place called Helam which is in the Transjordan. And the new troops were led by a fellow named Shovak. Now for whatever reason David decided he would lead his forces this time and so they marched to Helam and there they defeated Hadad, Azer's coalition of Aramean armies. An exceptionally large group of chariot teams and cavalry were destroyed and thus David's victory caused Hadad, Azer's vassals to defect and they offered their allegiance to David. The Arameans and the Syrians, who really only joined this fight for money, paid for by Hanun, king of Ammon, now had no choice but to hunker down and mind their own business and use what remained of their forces simply to defend against other nations who could not help but to have noticed their weakened condition that suddenly made them a target for takeover. Let's move on to chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go out to war, David sent out Joab, his servants who were with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the people of Ammon and laid siege to Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. Once, after his afternoon nap, David got up from his bed and went strolling on the roof of the king's palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing who was very beautiful. David made inquiries about the woman and told that her name was Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hitti. David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he went to bed with her, for she had been purified from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent a message to David, I am pregnant. David sent this order to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked him how Joab was doing, how the people were feeling, how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah left the king's palace and was followed by a present of food from the king. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the king's palace with all the servants of his lord, and he didn't go down to his own house. And when they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Haven't you just arrived from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah stay in tents. And my lord, Joab, and the servants of my lord are camping in the countryside. So should I go to my own house to eat and drink and go to bed with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David said to Uriah, Stay here today. Also, tomorrow I will tell you, I will let you leave. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the following day. David summoned him, ate and drank with him, got him drunk. But in the evening he went out and lay on his bed with the Lord's servants and did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it with Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Put Uriah on the front lines in the fiercest fighting and then pull back from him so that he'll be wounded and killed. So while Joab had the city under siege, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the toughest defenders were. The men of the city went out, fought Joab. A number of people fell, including some of David's servants, with Uriah the Hittite among the dead. Joab sent a message to David reporting all the news concerning the war and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling the king all the news about the war, he may become angry and ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Don't you know that they shoot from the wall? Didn't you think about the person who struck Avimelech, the son of Yerubasheth, that a woman threw an upper millstone down upon him from the wall so that he died at Tevetz? Why did you go so near the wall? And if he says this, tell him, your servant Uriah is dead also. So the messenger left, and on arrival he told David all that Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said, said to David, the men were overpowering us and came out after us into the countryside, but we chased them all the way back to the entrance of the city gate. The archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. Also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David said uh, said to the messenger, Tell Joab, don't let this matter get you down. The sword devours in one way or another. Intensify your battle against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned her husband. When the mourning was over, David sent and took her home to his palace, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But Adonai saw what David had done was evil. Ah, yes. The infamous story of David and Bathsheba. What child in Sunday school has not heard this story and enjoyed it immensely? And yet, I think that rarely is it ever spoken in the hushed and sad tones that it ought to be. I want to summarize the nature of this narrative before we study it verse by verse next week. Of course, this isn't really a children's story at all. 
The Song of Solomon is avoided and hardly studied by adults, even less so in mixed groups. So sexually explicit is its material. But the story of David and Bathsheba is far worse. Because unlike the Song of Solomon that speaks of good and proper sexual relations between husband and wife that pleases God, our story is about adultery and then murder to cover it all up. It's a story of lust, covetousness by the anointed king that results in blood guilt. I think a good balanced tone that captures the essence of this episode of David's life is written in the Berleberg Bible. It's an outstanding work created in the early 1700s. An anonymous contributor to this German publication says this, We may see from this how deep a soul may fall when it turns away from God and from guidance of His grace. This David, who in the days of his persecution would not even resort to means that were really plausible to defend himself, was now not ashamed to resort to the greatest crimes in order to cover his own sin. Oh God, how great is our strength when we lay hold of Thee! How weak we become as soon as we turn away from Thee! The greatest saints would be ready for the worst of deeds if thou shouldst leave them for but a single moment without thy protection. Whoever reflects upon this will give up all thought of self-security and spiritual pride. The bottom line then to the story of David and Bathsheba is more of a warning to every believer that it is a history lesson or a delightful children's tale or even an early Hebrew version of Romeo and Juliet. It demonstrates to all who worship the God of Israel that it doesn't matter that we've accepted Christ if we freely choose to decide that once saved, we now have the tools to go it alone. That once saved, we think we have the inner capacity to resist temptation by our own will, to know the truth by our own conscience, to follow God by means of our own goodness. That once saved, we believe that God sets aside His justice. None of it applies to us anymore. There is no greater Bible hero, aside from Messiah himself, than David. And yet, despite every advantage of nearness and access to God, of an abundance of divine mercy and grace available to him, of a lifetime of miraculous victories that no man would have a right to expect, his evil inclination took hold. And we see a man that currently seems to be more Saul than David. 
Nowhere is the devil blamed for this. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, during those times that we stick close to God's Word and avail ourselves of His unlimited hesed and guidance, we're as if in a boat, in an ark, that floats securely in waters teeming with stealthy sharks swimming just out of sight, just under that calm and inviting surface. Dip a toe into that dangerous but alluring water of transgression and we may well be left with nine digits instead of a full complement. Leave the safety of God's ark for even a moment and disaster is waiting to swallow us up. Perhaps we'll only be bloodied, scarred, a little less whole than when we entered those dark waters thus afforded another opportunity to behave more wisely. Then again, we may not survive whatsoever, or we may be so damaged and crippled as to be of no further use. David jumped out of the boat. The cost was enormous. The consequences extended to his children, and it followed him to his grave. Amazingly, the rabbis of old have been so anxious to hold David up as near perfect that every that they excuse every heinous sin we see uncovered in this story and often turn it on its head to actually make what he did meritorious. Since we've read the story and we're all quite familiar with it, at least on the surface. I want to take final moments of this class to explain to you the rabbinical Jewish view of this sad episode rather than interrupt the flow when we start to study it. To begin with, the general rabbinical viewpoint is that nothing David did was sin because from the beginning of the world it was destined that David would marry Bathsheba and in time they'd produce Solomon. Therefore, while it may appear in the Scriptures that what David and Bathsheba did was awful and rebellious, in fact, it was all perfectly fine with God, since the end result was all that mattered. Further, that the hero of this story was not the faithful Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, but rather it was David. In order to make David appear virtuous, the rabbis have decided that Uriah was a phony. He had a wicked intention behind, intention behind everything he did. That Thus, whatever happened to him, he deserved it. And it was fully just on David's part. When David sent him out to be killed on the battlefield, it was because Uriah disrespected David by not obeying his order to go home and wash his feet. But rather he chose to stay close to the king. A disobedient soldier is worthy of capital punishment by any means. And so David merely imparted God's justice when he arranged for his murder. That's their rationale. Another rabbi explains that it was by divine providence 
that David did these terrible acts because God's purpose was so that David would repent. And then it would be recorded in the Scriptures, particularly Psalm 51. And thus all future worshipers of the God of Israel would have a model of repentance to follow. Therefore, this was all to David's merit and God found no fault with him. In another amazing case of turning the word of God on its head, some of the ancient sages say that in those days, the common practice was for all Israelite soldiers to issue a writ of divorce to their wives before they went out to battle, thus allowing for them to remarry if the soldier never returned. Rashi says the divorce was of course not in effect if the soldier did return, but it was retroactive to when he left if it turned out he was killed or captured. Therefore, by this ruling, Bathsheba wasn't even married to Uriah when David seduced her because Uriah was eventually killed. Now, according to some medieval rabbinical commentary on the Talmud called the Tosfos, the military wives actually were divorced before the soldiers left for battle, but then their husbands remarried them when they returned. Thus, even if Uriah had returned, Bathsheba had been unattached during the time of his absence, and so there was no adultery. So the idea is that adultery never actually happened. Uriah's murder wasn't really murder. It was justice for his insolence and insubordination. But perhaps the final insult to the Holy Word of God comes when trying to explain away the last verse of chapter 11, where it says, When the morning was over, David sent and took her home to his palace, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But Adonai saw what David had done as evil. The explanation in the section of the Talmud called Shabbos 56a says that this passage doesn't mean that David had actually done evil. It just means that while David may have intended to do evil, his actions weren't judged as evil because God had intended the end result all along. And you know, we can all laugh about this. And we can heap scorn at such nonsense. But we need to realize, we're going to close with this, we need to realize that this is nothing more than allegorical teaching gone wild. Allegorical teaching means that the author of the passage intended something entirely different from what it says. Allegorical teaching has been at the center of Christianity and pastoral sermons for centuries. And just as this sort of allegory has led Judaism off into the wilderness at times, so it has led Christians into a litany of errant theology and anti-Semitism. The only cure I know of is to learn God's Word and to take it for what it says. Not to twist it, not to turn it, so that it serves as a validation of some man-made doctrine that suits us 
or validates an agenda. We'll study the affair of David and Bathsheba in depth next time.